This episode is sponsored by Major, Lindsay, and Africa, the global navigators of legal careers. For more than 30 years, Major, Lindsay, and Africa has helped match law firms and corporations with exceptional legal talent. To find out more, go to mlaglobal.com. This episode is also sponsored by Bloomberg Law, an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need. To request a trial, go to bna.com slash Bloomberg Law. Welcome to the Big Law Business Podcast, which covers the business of law. My name is Casey Sullivan, and I'm joined today by Jeff Feely, a Bloomberg News reporter who came out with a story on FBI charges against a now former Aiken Gump partner. The firm recently fired Jeffrey Wirtgen after these bizarre charges surfaced. According to documents filed by the FBI, uh, Jeffrey attempted to sell a, a secret lawsuit to the opposing party. Uh, thanks for joining us, Jeff. Hey, no problem. Um, so give us the broad brushstrokes here. Uh, what, what happened? This gentleman is a former DOJ lawyer who was uh, pretty high up in what's called the False Claims Division. That's the uh, part of the Justice Department that goes after companies for cheating taxpayers. Um, this gentleman uh, left the government last year in April and joined a big law firm, Aiken Gump, and he was going to work on these kind of cases defending companies who were under investigation. Apparently, at one point, um, right around uh, late November, uh, this gentleman is accused of calling a company, an unnamed company out in Sunnyvale, California, and offering to give them access to a sealed complaint uh, that was the target of an investigation uh, by the uh, Justice Department. The way this works is... Uh, when uh, a whistleblower files a lawsuit against a company accusing it of wrongdoing, you know, cheating the government, overbilling, stuff like that, the lawsuit is immediately sealed so that the FBI has time to investigate the claims to see whether they're legitimate or not. The company does not know at that point that a whistleblower has stepped forward and made the allegations. Um, so they don't have access to the suit. Somehow this gentleman got access to the suit and was offering it to the company so that they could get what's called ahead of the investigation, find out about the allegations, you know, start to uh, gather facts, stuff like that. Uh, he had demanded $300,000 in return for, ac for a copy of the sealed um, lawsuit. The company contacted the FBI. The FBI set up a sting and uh, nabbed this guy in the lobby of a Hilton out in uh, Cupertino, California. He was wearing a wig as some sort of disguise, and uh, the FBI agent who was portraying the company employee had to, you know, was told to wear a, a Titleist hat and have, you know, the money in a blue duffel bag. It's sort of very, you know, John Le Carre uh, kind of stuff. Seems like it was right out of a movie. Right, right. This guy probably has watched too many spy movies, I think, or something. I don't know. <laughs> Have you seen anything like this before? Um, you know. No, this is a first. There's no question that uh, that this is not anything that you ever see. That the the, the the Justice Department has a reputation for being not just tight-lipped, but no-lipped about these kind of things. You have to keep these things sealed because you don't know whether these whistle out 
whistleblower allegations are for real or just disgruntled employee stuff. Yeah. So how did this story break? Um, I came into the office and I saw it on the terminal and I I didn't see it anywhere on the internet. The story broke because uh, I I was uh, tipped off by some folks that the criminal charges against Mr. Wirtkin had been unsealed on February the 6th. So I quickly went to PACER and pulled up the charging documents and there they were. One thing that struck me as weird about the whole thing was this $300,000 figure. Like, how did how did it come out to that? <laughs> I, apparently, it was a negotiation. The employee of the unnamed company that Mr. Wirtkin allegedly contacted attempted to negotiate down, but Mr. Wirtkin is the one who had basically, you know, offered up the $300,000. Interestingly enough, when the employee and Mr. Workin made later contact and decided there was going to be some sort of meeting. Mr. Workin upped the price to three hundred and ten thousand to cover his travel expenses, presumably from Washington to Cupertino, California. Any sense of why he upped it from three hundred to three hundred and ten? That seems like a pretty. I think the ten thousand dollars was to cover his plane fare and food, whatever huh. rental car. <laughs> Maybe rent the wig. Who knows? <laughs> and uh, you know, any any hint of like a relationship? Um, it, like, it seems uh, bizarre that he cold called this employee on the whim that um, this employee would be willing to engage in this um, scheme with him. Um, you know, a partner at a major law firm having come in, out of the Justice Department. Um, something seems off about like what like why he's doing that. Um, first of all, you know, just by point of reference, Aiken Gump partners earn on average nearly $2 million a year, according to the last year's American lawyer. Um, and it's Which, like, by the way, this guy made about $158,000 as a size salary at the Department of Justice. Yeah, just it's, it's, it's just weird that... Um, you know, we should preface everything by saying, you know, these are allegations at this point. I Correct. Guess, but, um, but it, it, it does seem like a, a stretch to put that much on the line um, for $300,000. There's no indication of in the charging documents of any hints of a previous relationship between Mr. Wirtkin and the employee called. There's just, I mean, there's just no way to know. People, can, you can speculate. You can speculate about how Mr. Workin got access to this complaint in the first place, but there is no, you know, solid fact in any of the court filings to indicate how that occurred either. So there's a lot of stuff we don't know. We're asking around. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff we may never know. What are the biggest pieces at this point um, that are unknowns that? you'd like to learn? Well, I mean, the first thing to me, the biggest thing, as I just mentioned, is how did he get access to this complaint? There are probably only two or three real ways that that could have occurred. The first way is that someone that he worked with within the DOJ leaked it to him. The second is he took the file with him um, when he left in April and didn't, you know, wait at a decent interval to let the dust settle from his departure and then called the company employee in late November, early December. Three, he could have been leaked it by a whistleblower. The whistleblower, whoever filed the suit, would know about it. We have no indication which of those three scenarios is going to be plausible. 
Right. Presumably it was something that he had worked on at the DOJ. Again, we wouldn't even know that. The the DOJ won't comment upon any of these things. The case is still sealed. Mm -hmm. What about uh, Aiken Gump's part? Um, You know, was this just a a sole individual um, acting out as opposed to, like, are there any implications whatsoever for Aiken Gump in this in terms of... No, again, there's no... There's no indication that this gentleman had Confederates either at Aiken Gump or within the government based on the court documents as as it stands right now. Now, the Aiken, he worked for Aiken Gump. He was hired for his expertise in false claims. Uh, law firms hire people from the government all the time. They're called lateral hires. And um, it's not, you know, the law firms are can't be held responsible for when one of the partners goes off the reservation. So uh, what should we expect uh, in any kind of a follow-up? Well, I mean, you know, we're going to follow the criminal charges. I suspect that's the way we will get more information about how this went down. We will continue to look, show up. He has a hearing set for February 22nd that we'll have a reporter at out in San Francisco. And um, we'll continue to ask questions. Um, There's not a lot of incentive for the folks in the government to be overly forthcoming about what this gentleman worked on or whether or not there's an investigation into whether he had help um, at the false claims department. But it's our job to ask our job to ask questions as reporters and their job to dodge them. So. Uh, I should say that uh, Aiken Gump has provided a statement um, outlining a few points. Uh, One, that there is no indication that Wirtgen misused any client information. The second was that it it appears from the criminal complaint that the document he attempted to sell was filed under seal in January 2016 uh, when he was working at the Justice Department. At least that's their um, that's ana- analysis that's, that, of it. That is correct. Of the, the that is correct that the, the the case itself was filed in. That's all we know about the case. It was filed in January two sixteen. He did not leave the government. He did not leave government service until April two sixteen. Right. Um, and then the last point was just that the firm's taking all appropriate steps to assess the situation. Well, he's been fired as a Aiken Gum partner. He's been removed from the website. I saw this morning he used to teach a class at uh, Georgetown. He has a PhD and a law degree from Georgetown. And he used to teach classes as an adjunct uh, professor over there on um, administrative law, and he's, he's not teaching there anymore. He made, he made note when the agents moved in to arrest him at the Hilton lobby that, quote, his life was over, close quote. Yeah, like one of the things that's so surprising about this is that this was a partner at Aiken Gump who had come out of the Justice Department. Like, there have been, you know, I guess more, uh, there have been other cases of wrongdoing uh, involving insider trading. There was like some weird case involving a Simpson Thatcher clerk um, a few years ago um, where, you know, this clerk brought insider trading information to Grand Central and exchanged it with a law school student. But like, you know, this is a partner. And, um, you know, can you talk about um, more about like who Jeffrey was and, and, and like how this, I mean, it just doesn't seem to add up. Well, I mean, he, he's he obviously he, Georgetown's a you know a blue chip law school, so he, he's a you know 
He was a fast-track guy. He was at Patton Boggs for a while. Then he went into government service, and I don't have the exact dates. But he you know, developed an expertise in these false claim cases, which is very complicated. It's uh, complex civil litigation. Um, the, the Justice Department has had a fabulous run uh, during the Obama years of generating settlements um, in the billions uh, over these kind of things, which basically recover the money for taxpayers that shouldn't have been billed to them by people. Um, so he had a very sophisticated background, one that would be very attractive to a big law firm to have to work with clients who are, you know, the targets of uh, these kind of false claims investigations. He would know how they worked. He would know the people who are trying them. It's the kind of information that, you know, is valuable. So um, this guy was is not a nobody. He was a, you know, he was somebody with a, a real defined skill set. And you know, I guess we'll just have to wait to see what prompted him to, you know, take on such a, you know, sort of harebrained operation over $300,000. Um, we just don't know what the motivations are at this point. Your story also said that the arrest highlights this unusual process um, involving lawsuits under the False Claims Act, which allows whistleblowers to sue companies on behalf of the U.S. government. Um, like, is there, you know, is there other kind of like shady stuff that happens in this whole process? Or- no, I mean, the, the, the problem, the, the deal is that a lot of people are uncomfortable with the whistleblower process. You have people coming forward to level allegations about of wrongdoing against companies, and they're, you know, the suspicion is they're motivated by money. Whistleblowers get a share of whatever's recovered um, from the company over the overbillings to the government. So it you know, raises you know, questions about the motivations of these people. What, what you know, they they're looking around for some sort of wrongdoing so they can cash in. You know, frankly, it's a it's a uh, a pretty good tool for the government to cut down on overbilling. You know, um, overcharging of the government. So, uh, in the end, the motivation of these people to the government is irrelevant. They want to recover money for the taxpayers. So. So, uh, like, what happens next in terms of procedure? Um, he's out on bail now, right? Um, there, you know, there'll be some court hearings going forward. He'll, you know, he'll have to um, uh, face the criminal charges, and the criminal process will play out. He'll either decide to plead guilty to the charges or, you know, go to trial on them. And that, you know, we'll have to wait and see what his decision is. Thanks for joining us for the latest episode of the Big Law Business Podcast. Join us next time by subscribing on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Big Law Biz. 